All right. Um, today, we're going to have an interview with Andrew Douglas. Um, for anybody that doesn't know, he is the founder and co-creator of Dojo University. He's got a new book out. He's won top uh, solo awards around the country and around the world. And he's been a part of uh, some of the top bands out there, current uh, grade one champions in Varian District, just to name one of them. Um, today, we're hoping to have a good conversation. And, you know, I'd like to start, Andrew, go ahead and introduce yourself for folks that may not know you. Well, thanks very much for having me here, Kenny. Um, it's very cool to do. And welcome to my world, you know, where everything happens on Zoom. You know, uh, you know, this is my uh, my domain here. Yeah. So it's it's good to chat with you. And it's good to be here. Awesome, man. Um, you know, again, for those that don't know you, um, how long how long you've been piping? What what kind of got you into all this? Yeah. So, um, well, I learned to play the bagpipes from my dad, Bruce Douglas uh, in Syracuse, New York area. And um, he learned from a Scottish immigrant named George McVicker, uh, who was a really good piper and taught my dad really well. My dad. You know, fortunately for me, my dad had great technique and a great ear for uh, bagpipe music. So he taught me great fundamentals. And um, and then even better, one of the most important things I think uh, about my dad's teaching is he, he passed me on to uh, true masters as soon as he could. So as soon as I could, I was in the Mohawk Valley Fraser's pipe band and learning a lot from Jim Clough, uh, probably the most underrated pipe major in EUS PBA history. Uh, and then, um, and then of course, at that time, Donald Lindsay was heavily involved teaching uh, the different bands and Oren Moore was a very young grade three band. So before long, I sort of, uh, I sort of was able to graduate into that grade three band. Oren Moore originally was a collaboration between the Mohawk Valley Frasers and the Syracuse Scottish pipe band. Um, and of course it, um, other bands sort of got involved over the years as well. Um, but uh, I was in the band from the second year that it existed. So um, that's basically where I can attribute most of my upbringing to. And then through all of the different connections that Donald Lindsay has, uh, I met uh, great pipers like Jim McGillivray, Jack Lee, uh, and others that have really molded my development as a player. And maybe more based on or along the lines of the conversation we're having tonight, they these people really shaped how I think about the instrument and and how I go about teaching it as well. Yeah. Well, and that's something I was going to ask was, you know, starting in those bands uh, kind of here in the States, upper Northeast, what was it like transitioning from, you know, bands here in the States to when you first started playing with um, Simon Fraser? Was it, was it a big kind of shock, you know, jumping from one to the other? Okay, so uh, I'll give I'll give a um, I'll give you a not uh, politically correct answer. Okay, so uh, musically, uh, technically, uh, finger wise, let's say it was very easy for me. And and I and I don't want to say that to brag. I I, I want to say that to say that I had great teachers, um, and I, I had great fundamentals my whole upbringing. So from a finger work perspective, it was uh, really not difficult to integrate with SFU at all for me. Uh, where it was difficult were two main areas. Number one would be instrument quality and instrument sound. So at that time, when I uh, left and played with SFU, the uh, Ross Canister craze was you know, probably in its peak, especially uh, in the Eastern United States. And um, 
that I remember Jim McGilvery, who was my main teacher at the time, sort of uh, giving me a hard time about the <laughs> fact that we were tying on a sheepskin bag and that I was getting ready to, you know, uh, play an old fashioned bagpipe, as he said. But um, but one of the things Jack Lee told me was you're going to learn a lot about tone when you tie on a sheepskin bag. And I was 16 at the time. I didn't really think much about it other than, you know, whatever you say, Jack, you know, I'm just excited <laughs> to be here. Uh, but he was absolutely right. Um, I learned a lot about instrument tone and sound, uh, you know, from Jack and Terry Lee and all of the other amazing players in the band. So, um, and I learned a lot about how to blow up a musical tone as well, which, um, you know, is it's not quite the same as just blowing steady. I think right. obvious. I think obviously anyone who goes and even tries out for SFU is going to be a steady blower. But it's the the production of the maximal quality of tone that I learned a lot about. That was the first thing that was a steep learning curve, and then the second thing um, was uh, was like the personality learning curve. So obviously, as a sixteen year old, uh, really, you know up and coming Piper, I was very confident. And I wouldn't say I was always a great team player, but you know how I interacted with other professionals, let's say, for lack of a better word, SFU is a very professional organization. And so I had to learn how to be a professional um, and how to act correctly in a you know high pressure, uh, high functioning team like that band is. And that took a while, you know? Uh, I. I like to think that by the time I left the band six years later, I'd learned a lot in that regard. But uh, in the beginning, it was very, very tricky. And and I, you know, I'm really grateful to Jack and Terry for being patient and all the others, <laughs> all the other people in the band, too, really. I mean, um, yeah, let's leave it there for now. But uh, but yeah, I learned a lot in those two regards. Um, and th those were two big sort of culture shock type things for me. And that's great. Um, and kind of carrying on with your your pipe band career as it is um was there kind of a continual climb to today's band invariant district playing under stewart everything is is there still things that you've continued to learn and continue to help kind of push you forward with your plan as uh instrument setups maintenance you know everything yeah well, one of the big things that uh i've learned to master and i use that word cautiously you know i i'm always learning more about it but uh you know to get it to a high standard so the biggest thing without question um is that all of us in inverary uh, and i i think it was the first year i joined the band was the first year that the band itself fully committed to playing entirely cane drone reads um in the band so that was a huge thing for me i dabbled with cane drone reads over the years with varying degrees of success but uh when the whole band says hey this is what we're doing now and uh you know basically we're going out on the field uh with cane drone reads uh that really makes you put your money where your mouth is and apply yourself and and so that's been an incredible experience um i i joke around with people but it's not really a joke you know, Kane is amazing. When you do get it under control, uh, my story, my anecdote that I tell people is, I think in 2018, I went the whole month of July without needing to tune my drones. Um, that's just how stable and just how reliable Kane drone reads can be. Um, and if you can get them under control, they truly are, you know, a, a fantastic option for producing great tone and great stability. 
So um, that was a, you know, a hugely cool thing. Uh, and then from there, it's I think it's just an extension and continuing to gather experience. And uh, Inverary is similar in many ways to SFU. And I think that's part of the appeal uh, for Stuart in having me involved with the band. Obviously, I'm not there very often, but but uh, I do think that it's a natural fit. And so far, uh, it's worked out well. So so that's been a, a cool experience. Well, it's great listening to you guys. I mean, um, not just on like medley MSR composition, which again, some of y'all's medleys have been some of my personal favorites. Um, but like you said, with your instrument setups, um, some, some of the tone that's come out of the band is probably some of the best I've, I've ever heard. Um, just fantastic all around. Um, one, one thing I like, and uh, I'd like to touch on uh, Dojo real quick is I know you've got your, your videos and setups on uh, cane reed calibrations and tying in sheepskin bags and all of that. Um, I, I love that because, you know, growing up in Memphis, you know, you know, I started in a little street band that, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of outside instruction. So uh, kind of growing up through our organization, really to get any kind of higher learning, you'd have to go to workshops, try and record as much as possible. And with what you've built on Dojo, you're putting a lot of this education at people's fingertips that they, it would be hard to get, even, even by today's standards with all the technology around. Um, was that what kind of spurred you into you and Carl kind of creating this and, and putting it out there for everybody, kind of your own experience and seeing the need for that education? Well, uh, you know, I think no, originally no, but of course, over time, definitely. Yes. You know, originally, and it's still, it's still the main thing that guides, guides us today. But the original brainstorm was simply this, you know, uh, I love, piping school. I love it. It's great. What if we could do this on the internet so that anybody could come to piping school? That's, that's basically it. Uh, and we, and we started small from there, you know? Uh, and the cool thing about the internet is, uh, you know, as far as assembling the different personalities, so students, of course, but then also theoretically. Now, when we first started the dojo, it wasn't like it is today. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, like, let me turn on my original sound so I get the high quality and then, you know, I'll set up my green screen. So it looks like it wasn't like that at all. As a matter of fact, we started off with some software. I don't even remember what it was called, but it was a online conferencing software that was like put together by two dudes in their oh, basement. Okay. Uh, and it was okay. And it was uh, certainly, but it was, uh, you know, certainly primitive. Uh, yeah. Or, and primitive and just like cutting edge. It really was now Skype lessons, of course, had been around. Right. So that's how you knew the concept was probably possible, but to, but then to get multiple people in a room, wasn't really a thing yet being able to share PDFs or share your screen or whatever, like that was like, like at that time, uh, we were surprised that was even in the, in the discussion. Um, and so, uh, so it's come a long way since then. Uh, Zoom is an ab absolutely miraculous uh, software. And that first one, that was what, uh, before you guys uh, jumped to Adobe Connect, I think that's, that's mm -hmm. when I started uh, working with you guys was when you had that platform. And I mean, even it was 
awesome with with yeah. what all it could offer. Adobe Connect was a huge major game changer for us, uh, and it had certain drawbacks that were annoying, but it was it was definitely magical. And and we learned the sort of etiquette that the rest of the world has had to learn during COVID. I mean, we developed that etiquette probably 10 years ago. Well, maybe eight years ago. And, uh, you know, certain things like, well, people have to turn their microphones off when they're not uh, when they're not doing anything, because otherwise there's too much background noise. And and the other thing, which is no longer true, but you used to we figured out that, okay, people should keep their webcams off unless we need them, because otherwise it would chew up too much bandwidth. But of course, the world is a different place now in that regard. And uh, I mean, you can almost (laughs) play bagpipes back and forth in high quality. Now you can almost do it. It's still, it's still too difficult for non-technological people to do comfortably. Yeah. To get all the settings right to where it's not overpowering the microphone or, you know, just kind of killing the feed. Yep. But you can almost do it now. And I'm sure I'm certain in five years, there'll be a way that this happens uh, and, it, and it won't even be a thing. So, uh, but anyway, I, I'm totally off track. What was the question? No, I mean, that was, that was getting right into it. Just kind of giving some background on, on Dojo and what kind of got you guys into yeah. it. Um, well, so anyway, I do remember the question. So the question was like, you know, was the fact that, or is the fact that the Dojo is able to disseminate high quality knowledge to anyone who needs it, you know, is that part of the game plan? And yeah, that's absolutely it. You know, um, it's absolutely it. And the sheepskin bag tie on thing is a perfect example. You know, I know how to tie in a sheepskin bag. I read the book. I think it was the John McFadgen guide, or if I have, I might have that right, but it was like a little, little diagrams in a book. And uh, here's how you do the measurements or whatever. But, uh, so like theoretically, I kind of knew how to do it. Um, but, but then I won't go into the full story here, but then when I lived in Vancouver and played with SFU, um, I worked at Tartantown on and off through the years doing odd jobs. One of which was tying in bags. And when Terry Lee gave me his lesson on how to do it, it was absolute game changer. He was using the same measurements, but the little tips and the little tricks and the way that you get the maximum tension and all that stuff is huge. And you're not going to get that, uh, 30 years ago in, in Tennessee, let's say, you're not going to, you're not going to get that kind of instruction unless you invest heavily. So that's part of the magic of, uh, of the dojo, I think, you know, is that we can get that, that quality of instruction to people and, and we can go both ways too. Like YouTube is great for learning stuff about bagpipes, but it's only one way. For the most part, I I guess there's comments, but it's only one way. But what's cool about the dojo is, you know, you can interact with other students and and, uh, some of the best pipers and the best piping teachers in the world. You can go back and forth. You could sign on to a live class and get that interaction. So, uh, so yeah, that's, it's all part of what makes the project so exciting. And it continues to be really exciting. And and that's what I like about the newest iteration of the dojo is it's almost like an online college course where, you have um, lessons, you have stu- course uh, exercises do, you can turn in recordings and get feedback on them. Um, it, it's just a great tool. Um, has your experience through the dojo so far, was that what kind of continued you on this journey of education and, and kind of pushed you into kind of getting started on this book that's just come out? Yeah, so I've always kind of 
wanted to write a book. You know, since I was very young, actually, like when I was really little, I wanted to be a a writer. I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Uh, And then, you know, the dojo has something very definitive to say. You know, I I think we're we're quite different along those lines. Like, I I think you're going to get a different experience at the dojo than you'll get anywhere else in the world. Um, And the things that make us different. I've long felt I I needed to write them down and make them clear because sometimes it's hard to explain to somebody what we're trying to do here. Um, And that's really where the idea of the book came from. And then two things happened, COVID. So we're all locked in our homes. So it's like, well, you know, I'm not going to Scotland this year. (laughs) And uh, oh, that book thing seems like a good idea. And so it was on my mind, obviously, as a potential project. And then meeting Camille and getting to know her, and just sort of eventually making the connection that she would be the perfect person to work with on this book. Um, and she was willing to do it. Um, that, uh, that tipped it over the edge and made it, and made it something that was definitely go for launch. Um, you know, listening, listen to your history on how you learned through the pipe bands, how you've taught through dojo and then reading this book. Um, do you think it, it, it's about time for, uh, and I'm not going to say all pipers or even most pipers, but, you know, do you think it's time for kind of a shift in how we teach and how we learn in pipe bands? Because, you know, one thing with my own uh, learning and you kind of touched on it with uh, blowing tone, everything is when I was coming up through our pipe band, you know, you were given your pipes. There was no real calibration. You know, it was like, here's your reeds, here's your channer blow. And there wasn't a lot to that. Um with, with all these outlets and everything you've been putting in, do you think it's time to try and reach out to more people and kind of break that, that cycle of learning to maybe help the next generation of pipers coming through? Yeah. And I think you're touching on probably uh, you're touching on probably what is our, our most uh, like sort of the root of our mission at the dojo. I think you're touching right on it. I think it's long, long, long overdue uh, to have a, a, you know, a better way of doing most of the things that we do, you know, um, I think, yeah, I, this is, you know, and it's just my opinion and I, and I do, I have full respect for people who do revere the traditional methods. I have a lot of respect for these people, especially those who manage to create uh, beautiful music, despite how, uh, how dysfunctional the way that it is. I also think that there are other things going on that are transcending the, the old ways, uh, especially in Scotland, you know, like basically what you see in Scotland might, you might uh, call it like a facelift or, or, or a revamp of the traditional methods and sort of like uh, you're seeing it get tied in a lot more directly and with a lot more common sense to, uh, to the greater uh, musical tapestry. Uh, you might say, right? And you've got the degree program in Scotland, like right now, you've got the PDQB program, uh, sometimes known as the SQA program, which is also really, really cool. Uh, but I also think that what we're doing is, it's in the same category as those things, which is, uh, we've got we got to fix a lot of what's going on here in order to see the, um, oh, well, there's, there's two things going on, right? I mean, I think, we, we don't want to see the art form stagnate. We want to see it, you know, reach a new level, of course. But then also, certainly in the United States, we're seeing a huge drop off in enthusiasm, you know. Uh, and I think both of those things are a direct result 
uh, doing things in an extremely wrong-headed manner. Well, and, that, and that's something I think we've seen even in our home band here in Memphis is um, for years, we, we'd have some students that would come in and it would take them years to get up to pipes or they'd get up to pipes, they'd stick around a year and then they they'd kind of fizzle out and leave. And uh, as I started kind of coming up through the ranks and becoming a leader of our band, um, what I saw was when you'd have a new person learning pipes, you know, you'd have leadership throw huge tune book in front of them, you know, throw their pipes at them. And again, not well calibrated, probably way too hard to reads. And it would just, it, it wouldn't be fun to play. And, mm -hmm. you know, they would give up on it pretty quick. And um, something we've done here in Memphis over the last couple of years, have started using uh, manometers or the Roddy McClellan um, gauge stocks, you know, something that can help us dial in read strengths and uh, calibrate your drone reads and help give that visual on, um, you know, helping with blowing, not just telling them to blow, but giving them a visual that can help train them to where they can, you know, one day not have to use it and be, you know, comfortable in solo performances or band performances. Um, and we, we've seen a lot of success with that, even in, I mean, year one and two pipers that, without it probably would still be struggling just you know blowing their instrument up right and then and then that's and i'll just augment that and say that's just a tactic you know as well so it's cool that tactic is very effective and there are different ways you can use manometers to uh you know as a tactic to improve your players but like uh i think the overarching strategy has to be improved as well uh, and, and that is just one of many tactics that, um, you know, that I would personally use. And, and it's, it's good to see that a lot of people have taken to the manometer thing, you know. Um, and of course, yes, it's beyond, it goes beyond just blowing steady. As a matter of fact, uh, steadiness, in my mind, is secondary priority. So, you know, um, it's deprioritized, in my opinion. And the highest priority is identifying the sweet spot of your read. Okay. This is like going back to what I was talking about with SFU. Now we didn't use this terminology in SFU. It was much more kind of like a trial and error, you know, try something and either Jack and Terry like it or they don't like it. And then you got to try something else. And we didn't really have the vocabulary for it necessarily, but it's the same basic idea. You know, there is a spot on that read, a pressure, a certain pressure that sounds the best and you need to identify what that is. And then, your priority is to uh, blow steadily at that pressure and that the identification of the sweet spot is where most pipers uh, don't have clarity. So you're kind of shooting, you're kind of trying to target practice without the actual target, right? Where they kind of just try and plug and play, you know, here's a new read, put it in and make the best of it rather than checking your strength, checking the sweet spot, making sure yeah. it's balanced up and down the channel as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that, that's the other thing. That's one thing we've discovered at the dojo, which, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who have realized this, but I've never heard it taught, which is that, yes, there is an appropriate strength read for each and every one of us. And it's uh, it's not a good idea. And I think uh, I think it's a great shame when you give um, a learning piper a read that's not the correct strength for them. And, and that's something we've been big on uh, since using uh, the manometers and the gauge setups is um, we've been able to find without going necessarily too low, 
but find a read that is comfortable for the player and where they're at with their progression on piping. And um, what's great is when we go to order reads, we've gotten a couple vendors where we can tell them, hey, we need a couple in this pressure range, a couple in this pressure range and so forth. And then when they come in, that's when we take the task, you know, checking to see which one is best for their sweet spot closest to their number. And then we can kind of progress from there. Yeah. But um, even that, I mean, even what their number is, you have to be careful how you how you right. determine that. But um, uh, but yes, exactly. The the biggest thing, which you know, uh, the biggest thing, which regardless of what your tactic is to get there, is you know, uh, the bagpipe should never be to never feel too hard to play, right? I mean, you have kids, I know, uh, Kenny, right? So yes, sir, uh, and I do too. I would never sign my kids up for an activity that was just constant physical pain, right? That would be ridiculous. And we wonder why kid, why more kids don't play the bagpipes, right? And, and, and again, that, that's what we kind of ran into back in the older days of our, our band here in town was um, that they would order like hard G1 platinum reeds. And with the McCallum Channers at the time with the bigger holes, I mean, you'd, you'd be just warming up for about 10 minutes and felt like you're about to have a hernia. Right. And, you know, if you throw a whole bunch of tunes on top of that, that are maybe outside of your uh, proficiency level. I mean, there's just no way that you can focus on playing clean music when you're just kind of suffering through just trying to blow your instrument. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. And, you know, there are other thought experiments you can do on this one too. Like uh, name any great piper that visibly struggles as they play nobody right so why so if the most advanced amazing pipers in the world are not visibly struggling then why does it make sense for a beginner to be visibly struggling that doesn't make any sense at all and i had a i had a great experience with that um uh several years back me and our uh, pipe sergeant at the time uh, i got to take him to winterstorm for the first time and we were in a, a pipe class with the pipe sergeant of um, field marshal. And he asked, you know, anybody that want to come up and try his pipes to see how they were set up everything. And, you know, we were shocked at how easy they were to play. Absolutely. And he said exactly what you just said, you know, well, why would you struggle if you don't have to, you know, and it's all down to the calibration, everything, everything set up. But I mean, they were like the sweetest pipes I ever, I ever worked with, man. Yeah. I had an identical experience with Norman Gillis, uh, Alistair Gillis's father, way back. I was probably 11 years old, you know, and I was 11. I was probably already in grade two solos. Uh, and I, I played a nice hard read, like, you know, that's rumor had it. That's what you're supposed to do. So I had this nice hard read. And I just remember one day I showed up to class and it wasn't going well. My pipe sounded <laughs> terrible. It probably wasn't holding air and I was clear and I was struggling. And, uh, and I remember Norman was just like, just put that shite down. All right. Would you? All right. Uh, just grab my pipes and, and we'll play through sheep wife or whatever we were doing. And I picked them up and I, uh, you know, I, the reed squeaked right away and all the drones shut off. Uh, and, um, and then he laughed at me, you know? <laughs> uh, and then he was like, okay, try it again. Just don't blow quite as hard. And yeah, the, the bagpipe, was it sounded incredible and it was uh truly a joy to play um and you know that's the ideal as a beginner or an intermediate you have you're gonna have to work hard to be able to achieve that but that's what we're shooting for um and uh even in top bands right 
even in top bands, they might be playing hard reads, but they're not struggling. Right. Uh, and then they might be playing hard reads. You know, uh, that's a potential strategy for a very high level band, you know, for incremental improvement in tone and projection, perhaps. But uh, but nobody's struggling. And if anybody is, uh, that's going to be a detriment um, to the sound. And like you said, you're not going to be able to focus on music making if you're just struggling to keep the instrument going. Well, and, and kind of transitioning to sound and listening. Um could you could you go a little bit into your uh, ten basic skills for for bagpipe listeners? For bagpipe listeners? Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez, I, I don't know about you mean uh, the ten basic skills involved in playing the bagpipes? Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, I may have written that down or is, wrong. Or is there a typo yeah, in the book? Yeah. Oh, geez. Your 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 uh, ten ten basic skills. Yeah, I'm not sure the 10, I'm not sure all 10 are actually audible. That's why I'm not sure the 10 would apply for listeners so much. Uh, but, but yeah, like at the end of the day, there are 10 basic skills. Um, and there's actually kind of like 11. They, they just kind of get merged in eventually. Uh, so if I get to 11 here, uh, I'll try to explain why. But yeah, so uh, starting at the most important of the 10. So I'm going from most important to least important here which might surprise some people too. But yeah, the most important one is uh, rhythmic uh, control and understanding, right? So the first one is rhythm. So your ability to time musical events is number one. Let me just go by my list here. Because uh, I, I um, do, do you remember what chapter it's in? I don't know. I, I, it's somewhere in chapter one. It's somewhere in chapter one. Stand by. Okay, here we go. Yeah, exactly. I just I just want to make sure, because when I teach this in the morning at the dojo, I always miss at least one. So yeah, rhythmic control is the first thing. So the timing of musical events is the most important thing. We can talk about why it's the most important later if you want. Second one, uh, we call scale navigation at the dojo, but uh, a good way to put it where everyone can understand it is just uh, going from note to note cleanly. Uh, no crossing noises. Okay, so that's a, another skill that we have to develop, right? We have to know how to go. We have to know what the notes are. And we have to be able to go back and forth from note to note without any issues. So that's the second uh, active skill. And active is a key word here because there are other skills, but they're not active. We don't need them actively when we're playing. A perfect example of that would be bagpipe maintenance, right? Bagpipe maintenance is an important skill, but we don't include it in our list because we're not actively maintaining our bagpipe when we're playing. So these are just the things that we need to be able to do simultaneously as we're juggling all of our musical balls in the air. So grace note quality is the next one. So uh, without going into too much detail, right? We've all heard pipers with bad grace notes and we've heard pipers with incredible grace notes. Um, and uh, what's the difference and why and how do we make sure we always produce excellent grace notes? Well, that's the third skill. Fourth skill, physical blowing mechanics. This is the fourth skill. Um, and I do think these are actually in the right order. You know, so uh, once we can play some basic tunes with some simple, excellent grace notes, you know, no crossing noises, good rhythm, stuff like that, it's time to graduate to playing the full instrument. And we'll start with physical blowing mechanics, blowing, squeezing, and transitions between the blowing and the squeezing. 
Uh, next, tuning drones to each other. So tuning is actually, uh, the way that I look at it, tuning is a two-part process. It doesn't really matter which order you do the process, but the two parts are tuning the drones to each other as a unit. So instead of hearing three drones, we just want to hear one. Really? At the end of the day? Like if you, uh, if you listen to a bagpiper and it sounds like just one drone, that's how you know job accomplished uh, that part that component is accomplished and then the other component is making sure those drones as a unit are in tune with all of the different chanter intervals uh, but don't mistake that we're not there yet uh, so tuning the drones to each other was number five number six identifying the chanter read sweet spot yeah extremely important um, seven tuning the drones to the chanter and then finally, uh, finally, something that very few other schools of thought ever talk about. I'm pretty sure we're all aware of it, though. Uh, what we call mental blowing anomalies and avoiding those is number eight. So a mental blowing anomaly is when uh, something you're doing with your finger work causes a change in steadiness on your instrument. Uh, that's what a mental blowing anomaly is. The most common example there would be, have you ever met someone who, uh, when they play a high A, they surge the pressure and they're blowing? Like, what's up with that? Or someone who forgets to blow during a difficult passage and, and chokes out on the chanter? Uh, or, I don't know, there's a... My, my little uh, mental blowing anomaly that creeps up on me when I'm not practicing enough is uh, underblowing on a high G. Just something that... Just an old habit that's never quite died. Um, and then, interestingly... Nine and 10 are things that most people spend a ton of time practicing, which are the least important of, of the 10 active skills. Number nine is embellishment mechanics. So, you know, E doublings, C doublings, not crushing them, playing just the right degree of openness, uh, integrating them into the rhythm of the tune, all that kind of stuff. Number nine. And then number 10, uh, the basic fundamental surrounding expression. Uh, and the, the big dojo buzzwords there are ALAP and ASAP. But it doesn't really matter uh, what you do as long as, or, or what you call it, as long as you're showing that nice contrast between dots and cuts. Um, and that's number 10. So at any given time when you're playing. Um, you should have you, all these things going on at the same time. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. And not just that. Is those 10 things should all be going on simultaneously. Here's the kicker without having to think about any of it. Right. That's so a lot. Of, so a lot of a muscle memory, a lot of practice. Um, yeah. Muscle memory is not the right word. Um, it's uh, but we, we would call it unconscious competence. Uh, you could call it autopilot. But uh, yeah, you, you've become so competent with the skill that you no longer have to use conscious brain juice. No more conscious brain power required to do these 10 things. Um, and that's, that's what mastery is all about, is all of the fundamental skills are on autopilot so that all of your focus can be put on uh, producing your own unique musical voice or your own ideas. That's the big idea. Um, and I think if, if all of us sat down, I, I can't imagine a single person in the world disagreeing with me on this basic premise which is that the fundamentals should uh, 
should become should be high quality and on autopilot so you can shift your focus to great music making um, and, and, and that's what i've seen personally is when you look at uh, some of the just highest level pipers out there you can see this across their plane and i mean you could sit there and hand them a, a brand new tune and because they have all that just ingrained in them they're able to everything just kind of flows because you're not overthinking oh shoot i've got to watch my blow in here i've got a you know i know i have a funky grace note here mm -hmm. you know it, it allows everything to kind of just smooth out and like you said it allows for just better all-around music and performance yes exactly and th there's a variety of different strategies the most common strategy uh is the beat it over the head strategy you know, that that's the most common one I've seen over all the years uh, to achieve this sort of standard across these 10 skills, which is just, you know, um, and I think that's why you see piping handed down across generations of a family that, like those tend to be not always, but they tend to be our most successful pipers historically. Uh, and that's because literally every day you can hammer in the, you know, yes or no, you can get that yes or no feedback in real time, in person, every yep. single day. Uh, and across many years, uh, you know, you can basically, I, I forgot, the, you beat it over the head enough times, then it becomes ingrained, you know? Uh, and that's the most common way that pipers achieve mastery. Um, it's, well, seldom, um... it's seldom a conscious thing. And that's what we do at the dojo. It's sort of been a necessity for us, right? So I can't reach through the screen and help you tune your drones. So we have to figure out how we're gonna talk about these things. Uh, and what's interesting is a lot of good stuff comes out in the process, you know, well, and, so. and talking about uh, process and, and the list of, you know, all these steps and everything to master. Yeah, that kind of leads into my next thing of your, your phases of bagpipe freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and could you kind of go into that a little bit and how it plays into these 10 basic skills? Yeah, so the 10 basic skills, um, they are the five phases, right? They're just spread out and it's not entirely clear how we're going to go about this yet, right? So uh, so the way that we do things at the dojo, and, and there's two ways you could do it. You could do it as a pure beginner from scratch. You could go through the five uh, freedom phases, as we call them. Because remember, that's the objective is creative freedom at the end of the day, right? So that's why we call them freedom phases. And also because it annoys British people. <laughs> They hate they hate us Americans running around talking about freedom all the time, uh, so that's that. It's, so it's a little bit cathartic in that sense. But um, no, but the real reason is because this is all about creative freedom, right? We don't want to be we don't want to be uh, shackled by our either our inability to play the fundamentals well or the fundamentals overwhelming our bandwidth in our brain so that we can't focus on actually doing anything unique of our own volition, right? So. So that's why they're called freedom phases. So the, so you could do this as a pure beginner, but more commonly what we do is, this is what we do to, uh, uh, to reset a player, right? So uh, let's say a player hits a roadblock in their piping. Uh, maybe you can't get out of grade three solos or can't get into grade three solos, or maybe you can't quite make the grade four band or, uh, you know. You're just kind of stuck. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and if you're stuck, this is, uh, you know, this five phase process will help you identify what gaps are missing in your fundamental skill set, and it'll help you develop them. So well, you I go think it's easy um, 
for uh, people kind of like me and what I call kind of the bagpipe dead zones is if you're working on your own, you don't have an instructor or, you know, kind of a guide like this to follow. Um, it's easy to get distracted and work on oh, yeah. the wrong things. And that's where, you know, you mentioned um, the distractions or the junk food of focus, you know, mm-hmm. um, that just, it, it seems like having this set path, would would just be golden for any piper. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and and the uh, the other thing too is, you know, let's say you're going on a diet and you're trying to get healthy. Um, a lot of diets, uh, you know, incorporate cheat meals or like an 80-20 rule or something like that. Um, and and the same thing would be true here. Uh, you don't have to just do phase one and never do anything else. It's just that this should be what you're focused on as much as possible. So the first of the five phases, and here's how it works. You start in phase one uh, and, and you have, a, a, you have a, a list of objectives, okay, in each phase. Once you could do those objectives, okay, and you can prove it, then you move on to the next phase. That's the big idea, right? And in the next phase, you incorporate the previous objectives, but then you add other objectives on top. That's how this is gonna work, right? So phase one goes like this. Clap the rhythm of your tune, okay? Uh, And there's more details in here, but I'm gonna keep it super simple. Uh, Yeah, clap the rhythms of your tune. That sounds easy enough, right? Yeah, I saw a buddy of mine, I saw his band posted on their Facebook page the other day, Las Vegas Pipe Band. Yeah, that was their their warm up. Was I think they were uh, working on meeting of the waters, and yeah. we're just sitting there clapping through the tune all together, both the pipers and the drummers. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this? Well, and then the only rule, okay, the only thing that um, the only uh, wrench in the spokes here is uh, that you you must use a metronome, okay, when you do it. Uh, and why is that? Um, because we're and, not all perfect. Well, and that's just it. And well, and the metronome, okay, gives you, the metronome is like a measuring stick, okay? Yep. Without the metronome, you cannot prove that your rhythm is accurate, okay? So think of that, like we're not using a metronome because we want to become robots, okay? We're not using a metronome because like we're mean, okay? We're using a metronome because that's the only way to measure whether or not you are successful, okay? Otherwise, you're just uh, you're just sort of shooting rhythm out into the air. And what do we find? Well, a lot of people who thought they were good at rhythm, when they turn the metronome on, they find that they are catastrophically, habitually out of control uh, in the sense that they're always ahead of the metronome on every single beat. We find that 97% of the time. It doesn't matter the level of the player. Uh, as a matter of fact, a very famous, uh, a very famous piper, uh, you know, decided to be a good sport and to give it a shot with us at one point. And, uh, and this is a very famous player who's won at least one gold medal. Uh, and he could not, uh, he could not uh, play accurately to the click yet. And, and of course, you know, we're gonna work on that. Uh, that accuracy is key. Uh, the big idea is we want to know exactly when we're going to play something and we want to be able to do it. That's the big idea. And it usually takes Piper several tries 
but that's all you have to do in phase one to get through. Um, a lot of pipers can do everything well except rhythm. Okay, but uh, so phase one is a great uh, controlled environment. And what kind of either you could say it sucks or you could say that it's extremely interesting depending on what type of uh, uh, personality you have. It, it involves no practice chanter and no bagpipes. I, I just want to know if you can clap the rhythm of the tune or not. That's phase one. Simple, right? Now phase two, we're going to take the rhythm obviously, because tunes can't exist without rhythm. But phase two is you're going to take your tune and you are going to um, <clears throat> play a simplified version of that tune with grace notes only, no embellishments. You're going to play a simplified version of that tune on Practice Chanter with excellent rhythm, no crossing noises, and excellent grace note quality. And, you know, we won't get into the details of exactly how we do that, uh, in the interest of time, but that's phase two. Sounds easy, right? Anybody can do it, right? Until you try it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, most people can do it, but it takes uh, practice and hard work and you identify a lot of gaps in your skill way down the, uh, you know, way down toward the base of the pyramid. You know, most of us have tons and tons of flight hours practicing embellishments and expression but we've completely neglected rhythm, scale navigation, uh, and especially grace note quality tends to be a big one. All right, after phase two, we put the practice chanter down, and what we do is we play the bagpipe with no chanter read. That's phase three, okay? And what we're looking for in phase three is steady blowing cadence, you know, being able to achieve steady blowing being able to achieve what we call the four points of bagpipe posture, but basically making sure we can operate this simple bagpipe with, you know, with excellent form and posture as we play, right? Uh, and then finally, being able to tune one bass and a tenor together on your own. Uh, and that's phase three. So we take the bagpipe chanter and we cork it up for phase three. Okay, because we... We are going to bring the chanter in, don't you worry. But before we do that, like, let's make sure we have these other basic things in in good shape. Just all building blocks, kind of. Building blocks, absolutely. Getting, getting little little things all together to make sure the end product is as good as it can be. Taking the chanter out of the mix was one of the great aha moments for me. And uh, the person who gave me this idea was Joe Brady from the Waken District uh, Pipe Band. Uh, I, we were just talking about it and he's like, Hey, I love your blah, blah, blah course, but have you ever thought of doing blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, no, what are you crazy? And he's like, well, we do it and here's how it works. And then, uh, he's of course, absolutely right. He um, tends and, to be most times. <laughs> I know he tends, he, he's one of those annoying people. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so no chanter at first, the chanter itself is in the pipes because it's part of the posture equation, right? So the chanter is plugged in. And, and we're setting up our posture and we're we're getting that smooth blowing cycle and we're um, and then we're also practicing some basic tuning skills in that controlled environment. And if you can do that, a lot of people do that quite easily. Uh, like a lot of people have strong basic in instrument fundamentals and where they struggled, you know, they may have struggled in phases one and two, but phase three is a breeze. Uh, it, it, it really changes with every individual. 
because every individual has different gaps in skill. And that's what the freedom phase process is uh, designed to uh, illuminate. How do you like that? That's a great three syllable word. That's right. Um, all right, so phase four is basically putting phase three and phase two together. So now we put a chanter read in the pipes and we're playing that simplified grace notes only version of your tune on a good sounding bagpipe. We only do it with two drones. Um, and there are, as you know, uh, different things that pop up as soon as we put that chanter in. We got to deal with tuning the drones to the chanter itself, which is quite tricky. Those mental blowing anomalies sneak up on us right away, which is quite tricky. And we want to hear that people are playing at that sweet spot of their chanter read. So the, phase four tends to be a, a bottleneck, it takes a while. In addition to those three new things, we have to do all the other things as well. Uh, rhythmic quality, scale navigation, grace note quality, steady blowing cycle, and the drones themselves. So, so phase four is uh, the moment of truth. If you can pass that, then we begin to integrate embellishments and expression technique in phase five. Yeah, and then uh, that's that's how the structure of it works. Well, and it seems like going back and simplifying things is is really the goal and then building from there um and i know i've it's seen not it personally just that. i'll you, take it i'll take it one step further for you it's not just that simplifying it is you know something that you should be excited about because most poppers are not going to be excited about that right it's that you should be embarrassed that you spend so much time on embellishments and deep and meaningful expression when you cannot do the basics, right? So I just, sorry, I, I, you're too nice, Kenny. You won't well, say stuff like that. And, but and, I, and that kind of it. plays into what I was going to say was, do you kind of like what you just said, do you think that plays into why there's so many in the piping community that kind of push doing stuff like this aside? Um, I, I've seen it quite a bit where it's like, why do I need to go back and do that? Or, you know, even why do I need to record myself playing, you know, just is, is that kind of a thing where people don't want to expose that side of them? They just want to keep, yeah. keep going and not mm -hmm. pull it back. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and, and uh, the freedom phase process is great about exposing this weakness in my in general mindset, um, which is um, I don't have to go back and clap the rhythm. I'm a grade two piper. All right. You know, that kind of thing. It's a fixed yep. mindset. Oh, I'm a grade two piper. Um, we've all been there. I, you know, we, we, we love to throw our status around <laughs> like, like it means something. Um, and it's cool. You know, uh, getting to grade two is obviously a great accomplishment. Uh, but if rhythm is no big deal for you, then no, cool. Just prove it. That's right. Prove it. Like turn on a metronome and clap it. It's like, oh, well, my, my teacher doesn't teach with a metronome. Uh, yeah, but who cares? You know, right. like just clap to the metronome. No biggie, right? Give it a try. You're, the worst thing that happens as you become a better piper, what was I mean, X amount of minutes of trying something new? It's not, the, the reason they don't want to go back has, they might say it's because they shouldn't need to, but it's because they're afraid to. They're afraid to find out whether or not they can actually play with a metronome. And I'll give you a hint. I'll make this really easy. Uh, the law of large numbers says you can't. Yet. 
uh, in, with practice, you'll learn to. Okay, everyone, uh, everyone we we've taught at the dojo at all ages and stages has uh, been able to learn to play with a metronome. Okay, but I'll make this easy for you. Even if you're a grade one piper and most professional pipers, if you try to clap the rhythm of your tunes to the metronome, at first you'll fail. 97% of the time. I'll make it easy for you. You can't do it yet. So like, you know, just check it out. And does it turn you into a robot to be able to accurately time your rhythms? That's the big objection to the metronome in the piping world, right? right. Um, you know, no is the answer, right? It's like, does it turn you into a robot if uh, you can shoot an arrow at a target and hit the bullseye? No, it doesn't, right? It means that you have, uh, you know, control over that essential fundamental skill. Yeah. It means it means when you intend to play something, it actually happens, right? And from there, of course, you know, higher level playing, you can bend and mold the beat. You can change it. You can speed it up or slow it down or just bend it and flex it to make your own unique musical voice come out. Of course, of course you can do that if you choose to later on, but it all starts with control. Well, and what do you, uh, and again, I, 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 it goes back to the numbers thing. Sadly, there, my own personal experience, there's a lot of hard-headed people in the piping community. What, I don't know what, what you do you mean. think it's going to take to kind of push, especially onto band leaders, that kind of train of thought, you know, get them to pull it back, work on the basics, you know, and see it as, you know, not as necessarily a weakness with your plane, but, you know, a way to strengthen not just you, but your entire pipe core. Yeah. So I think that's a really, really deep question. Uh, and I think there's a lot of issues. I think that um, one of the unfortunate realities is that we don't expect our pipers, individuals, or, uh, or our pipe bands to play with uh, rhythmic control. We don't expect it. Um, and a lot of times bands are winning uh, with bad rhythm. So, you know, in that case, it's going to be difficult to convince bands to implement a system of rhythmic control when it's not something that is really required uh, to be quote unquote seemingly successful, even though eventually you will hit that wall and not be able to progress and you'll wonder right. why. Uh, and it, it will, you know, and it has to do with these fundamental skills that are lacking, you know, but, uh, you know, what do we reward in the solo competitions as early as grade four, otherwise known as the entry level grade. Um, and I, I'm speaking at the moment about solo competing, but as early as grade four, we are rewarding stuff like your ability to get from the beginning of a full P-Brock to the end without anything catastrophic happening. Now that's a great feat. Uh, but it doesn't really correlate to any of the essential fundamentals, in my opinion, right? Uh, and then we're rewarding stuff like call and answer phrasing and light and shade and strong weak, medium weak and full embellishment. Uh, you know, playing the bagpipe with all three drones. And like, these are the things that are uh, under the spotlight and we completely disregard rhythm altogether. Um, and in a lot of cases, we're disregarding the basic instrument mechanics as well. And, you know, so how things are structured contributes to the problem. You're not rewarded for doing the things uh, that are important to be done. And, my, that's, and again, this is just my opinion. And I, um, 
I, I'm fully aware that there are other opinions out there. And, and uh, as long as they're well argued, I have a lot of respect right. for those opinions too. But, uh, but it's very like, it's very difficult uh, to accept an argument that uh, doesn't take this into account. What we're doing here is we are sifting through uh, enthusiastic learners to try to find outliers. Right. That's, that's what we're doing with our mindset. Oh, Kenny's got a sneeze over there. Sorry um, about that. No problem. So, so uh, <clears throat> right now our process sifts through and finds the needle in all the haystacks. And what we should be doing is the opposite. And the outliers will rise to the top of that regard, rise to the top of the haystack regardless, right? But what we need to do is uh, find a system where anyone who's enthusiastic has a, a clear uh, image of what needs to get done in order to ascend the different levels. And uh, yeah, not everyone is going to come out sounding like Callum Beaumont. Uh, but whether we alienate all the other enthusiastic players in our search for, uh, you know, the Callum Beaumonts, that's easily, um, you know, that's easily decided one way or the other. Shoot, yeah. Um, kind of along those same lines, um, as we're getting close to our um, hour, don't want to hold you up too long. Um, I blame my, no, I'm, it's, it's not your fault, Kenny. I'm, I'm just a long-winded guy. Hey, it, it, this is all great stuff that I think is going to go a long way towards helping not just individuals, but bands. And, and that kind of leads me to my last uh, question of what's something you feel just one thing that could, you know, say a band in one of those bagpipe dead spots that they could pull from the book from the dojo from your experience um one main thing off the top of your head that could maybe help turn around the pipe section or their direction and kind of start pushing them the right way easy i mean well yeah it's sort of easy uh rhythm is everything and by the way drummer all you drummers out there just because you play drums does not mean you have good rhythm okay as a matter of fact I know for a fact there's a 97% chance you don't have it yet. And that's okay. You don't have to feel ashamed and you don't have to try to save face. Just get it, dig in there and do the work. But rhythm is everything. Rhythm is the root of everything. It's the root of unison playing. It's the root of ensemble. And for pipers, it's the root of scale navigation, grace note quality, embellishment quality. How can you express something if you're not in control of the timing of your fingers? Can't do it. And by the way, the same is true for drummers. Rhythm is everything. So anything you can do, and, and, and again, we, I talked about it earlier in a weird way, but rhythm is not going to be explicitly rewarded on your score sheets. Okay, that's why this seems weird to hear someone talk about this. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to talk about on a score sheet, which is why it doesn't show up. It's not that judges are bad. It's just like, how do you explain what's wrong with a person's rhythm in a couple of words on a score sheet, right? That's where you so, can see that more in that after competition talk with the judges that are right. willing to have some words with you where you'll get that verbally. But like you said, it's kind of hard to put that into words. Yeah, uh, I would. So rhythm is everything. Integrate a rhythmic warm up into your band practice. Don't exclude the drum corps from the rhythmic warm up. Drum corps, I got my eye on you out there. Uh, the drum corps, you know, it could be a full group thing, rhythmic warm up. You could talk about the fundamentals, 
Uh, and you can make sure across your band leadership that rhythm is the top priority. And it's the, um, what is it? It's the uh, rising tide that raises all boats for your band, right? It's just to get people on the, uh... here's an ironic thing, right? Someone's struggling in the snare core. And we're like, oh, I got the perfect idea for you. You're going to play tenor drum in our band. Woohoo. You know what I mean? That's yep. that seems good. And that's, you know, and maybe that's the right thing to do or maybe not. But guess what? It's ironic that the weakest uh, rhythmic members of our band uh, are, are sent to play, a uh, you know, an essential rhythmic role in the band. Right. And that's OK. By the way, it's OK. It's normal. Uh, just being aware of it puts you at an advantage against all of your uh, darkest rivals here. So teach people to play great rhythm. Prioritize that. There's a story in the book. Uh, a really, really great lady named Barb. She had terrible crossing noises. Uh, and we struggled for a long time and without much success. And then suddenly we switched gears and focused on rhythm for a while. And, and she showed up uh, a few weeks later and it's like, Barb, where'd your crossing noises go? What's a crossing noise really? It's a timing problem between your hands or your fingers, right? Yep. So get control of your timing, get control of a large number of your crossing noises. Fact. It's what you, it's what you learn. Um, it's what you learn when you do enough of this kind of stuff and, and actually give it a whirl. So yeah, that's my, that's my takeaway, Kenny. That's awesome, man. Um, you know, for, for anybody wanting to get a copy of this book, um, you know, where's the best place for them to pick it up at? That is a great question. And I'm 95% sure I know the answer. <laughs> I, I just want to test the link to make sure it, it didn't break. Okay. Get ready for this. Yeah. Oh yeah. It still works. And actually it's funny. I don't know when this interview comes out, but uh, ending on Labor Day, the book is 40% off right now. It's I'll try a, and get this out as soon as possible so yeah, people can get that. It's an honest coincidence, but the book is 40% off right now because, um, you know, we're just running a special here leading up to Labor Day. So um, bagpipefreedom.com. Awesome. If, if, you, uh, if there are any British people listening out there, <laughs> you know, uh, you could also go to dojouniversity.com slash book. I believe that also works. If you, if you don't want to type in the word freedom, <laughs> uh, you could do that. Um, let me just test that link real quick. Oh yeah, that one works too. Yes, but uh, bagpipefreedom.com is where you can get the book. Awesome. I don't know. I hope you enjoy it. I had a you know I had a great time writing it with Camille, and then um, we're uh, both really proud of how it came out. It was really cool experience. It came out way better than we thought it was going to when we started. That's at awesome. first, at first, it was kind of like, let's make a book and. I'm sure a couple of people will buy it, but you know, uh, it'll just be a great introduction to the dojo for anyone who wants to know more. Um, and so we started out with humble um, aspirations, but the book turned out great. We're super proud of it. And uh, within the first couple of weeks, we had already sold a thousand copies. Man, so, uh, fantastic. So it's, it's cool. Yeah, we're enjoying it. We're enjoying it. And uh, I hope you guys grab a copy of the book and enjoy it too. Heck yeah, we may even do a, a giveaway through the branch or something where we uh, get one of your copies and, and send it out to a member. Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, I'll donate one to that cause and I'll, I'll even oh, sign awesome. it. I'll even sign it for you. Awesome. One lucky winner. 
can get a signed copy. Although my handwriting is abysmal. I'm I'm right there with you, man. Cool. So Shoot. what's next? What's next for the Southern Branch? Um, we've got some big games coming up. Um, the Scotland County games um, are right around the corner. Stone Mountain games are right around the corner. Um, Scotland County is looking to have one of the biggest band turnouts I know in their recent history, even pre-COVID. Um, yeah. But just, I mean, bands are coming out of the woodwork for it. It's going to be a huge competition. So uh, we're going to have several guys on the field that day, hopefully going to have some live uh, video feeds, uh, maybe even try and grab some interviews the day of. Um, but the biggest thing with the branch, you know, we're, we're trying to really push education and building our, our members. You know, we want a goal of raising the quality, you know, tenor drummers, bass drummers, snare drummers, pipers, whatever we can do to give them, you know, top-notch instruction, interviews, um, tutorials, whatever we can. Um, we want to make sure they have that toolbox just filled with whatever they need to excel. Cool. Absolutely. So educate me. Uh, what is Florida part of the Southern branch or is yes, that sir. different? It, it was, I think, apart for a time and then it was its own association for a while. And it's now back a part of the Southern branch. And then is Texas as well? No, sir. That is part of the Southwest branch. Southwest branch. Got it. Yes, yeah, sir, that not... starts at, uh, I think, Arkansas, uh, kind of heading southwest. I, I'm, I'm pretty thick-headed with that kind of stuff. I, uh, I, know, I know that the USPBA has a variety of branches, uh, and then I know I'm in the Northeast branch. And then my knowledge, and that's about it. <laughs> my knowledge ends there. Um, I've always been in the Northeast branch, and I've never, I mean, um, we, we did the, you know, in the old days, we always did the Colonial Games. Those were great. And then, um, is that Metro or is that Mid-Atlantic? See, I, I don't even know. Oh, yeah. I'm not real sure on that because it's all, see, and you guys have so much more concentration of, of events and competition, just everything once you get up there. Um, and, you know, that's actually something else we're trying to do. A few months ago, we had a, an online uh, competition here for branch-only members. And, you know, whether everything goes back to normal eventually or not, um, one thing we want to continue is that low, that online competition where, um, you know, you, you give bands a chance that may not ever have a chance to travel to compete, um, you know, a means of playing against bands they would never meet, I mean, even at a local game. Um, so just, you know, whatever we can do to kind of expand their community is, awesome. is what we're shooting for. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good, sir. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I, you know, I'm always happy to talk for a long time. So thank, thanks, thanks again thanks for, for, for your time today. And shoot, I hope everybody in, enjoys this. And uh, hopefully we can have you back to go over some stuff again in the near future, maybe even do some tutorials or something. Sounds great. Awesome. Well, Sounds thank great. you very much, man. All right. You're welcome. See everybody later. Have a good one, man.